Let's look at Luke chapter 11 and walk through verses 1 through 4. And this is our fifth part of our study on the Lord's Prayer. And it's been an excellent study. Let's go ahead and read through these four verses and then uh, walk through this last portion, these last two petitions that we see within the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11 and verses 1 to 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." This is our fifth and final sermon on the Lord's Prayer here in Luke chapter 11. And just by way of review, we see what I could turn into an alliteration here that I think I ripped off of some commentator. But we see six Ps. We see paternity. We say our Father. We see praise. Hallowed be your name. We see the principality, your kingdom come, God's kingdom. We see provision. Give us each day our daily bread. We see pardon, forgive us our sins. And we see protection, lead us not into temptation. Paternity, praise, provision, pardon, and protection. Um, we are praying what we're praying here with an understanding of where we began in addressing God as Father and addressing God as Lord, addressing Him, hallowed be your name. And in prayer, we're coming to him and, and remembering this, that he is our father. He is a good God. He has shown love to us. He has shown kindness to us. God has shown his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And so going to the Lord in each of these areas, we, we are remembering who he is as father. We're remembering who he is as Lord, hallowed be your name, that although he is Father, we are not to be overly casual with him. We are not to forget that he is the Lord of the universe, that he has brought all things into existence, and that he is sovereignly ruling over all areas. Now, some people have particular difficulty with a prayer like this that says, Our Father. And some have even suggested, some have even taught in seminary classes that, well, we should maybe move away from calling God Father because there are people that have really bad fathers. There are people whose fathers are absolutely terrible and so they then have an association with God of this terrible earthly father that they had. However, the fact that you had a terrible earthly father, you had that terrible experience and you are regretting that. It is something that you find to be terrible. It is something that is dishonoring, something that you despise, that is a reminder of rather the goodness of God. It is a reminder of what is lacking in that area and what should be there. And God is a good father. God is a good provider. God is a loving and kind father. So we see in these last two portions, these last two petitions, the idea of pardon and protection, and they're prayed under everything else that we have prayed so far. We see first this idea of a pardon of sin. Luke 11 and verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted 
to us. These last two petitions have been difficult for some, especially even in the sister passage in, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Someone will read a passage like this, and they will say, well, it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive others, or forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive those that are indebted to us. You may ask the question, do I, am I forgiving those that are indebted to me? Well, actually, reading, praying something like this, that should be something that comes to your mind. Am I a forgiving person myself? But if you're not careful, you can begin to put the cart before the horse. You can forget how salvation works. You can forget how the gospel affected you and works within your life. You can misorient what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. These are all things that must illuminate whatever we're reading here. We must not forget who we are and where we would be apart from the work of God within us. Because some people will look at this and say, so, well, what does this mean? Does it mean you're praying to God to forgive your sins in the same way that you forgive others? Therefore, the way in which you will receive forgiveness from God is directly correlated to the way in which you forgive other people. It becomes a bit of a workspace salvation here. It becomes a bit of an earning of forgiveness for yourself. And someone will say, but I'm just reading the passage plainly. I'm just reading what it says directly there in front of me. And they may even grab other passages in the Bible to support this idea that you will be forgiven by God and God will forgive you in the exact way that you forgive other people. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 5 and 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. James 2 and verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Matthew 18, 32 through 35, then the master called the servants in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all, all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, these are passages that need to be considered. And these are warnings that need to be recognized. The forgiveness that you receive and the forgiveness that you give to others do have a correlation. There is a connection between these two. But we need to read this and understand this through the lens of the gospel. We need to read this and understand and remember how it is that we are saved okay we must not insert works into our justification we must not understand and even take a parable in some way and say well your sins are forgiven here but then over here they're not going to be forgiven because you didn't do this we must understand that the gospel requires faith and repentance and the gospel produces obedience there is a difference between what the gospel requires in what the gospel produces. We must rightly divide and understand the law of God, what is required from God that you would do in obedience to his law, and what it is that the gospel produces, what is required in the gospel. They must be differentiated. They must be understood. 
But when we read a passage like this, there must be a warning there as well. Because one of the results of the gospel, one of the consequences of the Lord giving you life, opening your eyes, giving you understanding, is that you will be changed, that you will be a new person. And one of the results of God working within your life is that you would be a forgiving person, that you have been forgiven by God and you likewise would be forgiven. And this is something that the Lord is going to work within you throughout your Christian life to grow these areas of your life, to transform you, to conform you to the image of Christ Jesus. This is our understanding of progressive sanctification. This is a work that God is doing in your life. There is an immediate sanctification that happens when you come to faith in Christ Jesus. You believe upon Christ. You are made alive. You are made a new person. You are regenerated. And there's an immediate sanctification that happens, but there is a progressive one that happens as well. And there is a change that God does in your life through his ordinary means, through the Spirit of God working in your life. And so as you hear the Word of God preached, as you hear the law and the gospel proclaimed, you will see areas where you fall short. That's the reality of preaching the Word of God. That's the reality of proclaiming the law of God. We must not lower the law of God. We must not make the law lower than it is. It is legalism that lowers the law of God. One who is a legalist will hear the law of God preached at times and they will say, but wait a second, you're being a legalist. It is incredibly ironic that the legalist is the one that oftentimes is lowering the law of God. But when we see the highness of the law of God, we see the ways in which we fall short to God's law and his requirement, it is a reminder of what we have been granted in Christ Jesus. It is a reminder of the grace that we have received from Christ Jesus. And that reminder of the grace that we've received from Christ Jesus, that reminder of the blessing and mercy that has been given to us as we see these areas where we fall short, that should work within us. That should drive us. That should drive us to desire to walk in obedience to Christ. To walk in obedience to the law of God. Is it so that we receive justification? No. If you're in Christ, you have peace with God. But it is to walk in obedience to God's word, to live in the way in which God has intended that you would live. But it must be caution. There must be a caution that is here. At any point where we see a law presented, at any point where we see a requirement of God that is there, we must also remember that the, the, the work within your heart, if it has not been done, it will not result in that within your life. And one who would not forgive, you must recognize that you are breaking the sixth commandment. There's other commandments you could be breaking, but Jesus brings this to our attention in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. And one who is holding unrighteous anger towards someone else, one who is holding a grudge towards someone else that is destructive to them is despising that person, is not recognizing that person as one who is made in the image of God. At that one point or that one aspect of your life, that is what is manifesting itself, 
there. And what is happening is it's very similar to that parable that I read earlier or made reference to. It's this idea of I'm one who has been saved by grace and through faith. The blood of Christ is sufficient for me. The work of Christ is sufficient to forgive my sin and make me right before God. But for you, for this area, for what you have done, you need the blood of Christ, but also I need a pound of flesh from you. I also, I need to excise this from you particularly. And you're placing yourself in a position as God. You're making yourself, let's be honest, a, 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 in, in a way that is more um, requiring more than what the Lord required. You're diminishing Christ's work. You may not recognize that that's logically what you're doing. You may not even follow it to its logical conclusion. But in viewing someone through that lens and saying, well, yes, the blood of Christ is sufficient for me and to cover my sins, but for you, I have this additional requirement over here. You are doing that. You're creating two standards. You are being duplicitous. We have another warning in 1 John. 1 John 3 and verse 11 through 15. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love our brothers. Who does not, whoever, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And again, we have these very stark contrasts that are coming from John in this epistle, which you have many times. No murderer has eternal life. But yet you can read this and recognize, well, there's areas where I struggle with anger towards someone else. There's areas where I've had hatred in my heart. And it is a reminder to you at those times of the high requirement of God's law, the high requirement of God's law that is looking at word, thought, deed, even motivation, and the requirement that is there of perfect obedience, it is a reminder of what Jesus did through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that he kept this law perfectly. He never failed in any way. He never fell short in any respect, and we can see the highness and the greatness of this law, and we can recognize the ways in which we fall short, and that should drive us to greater praise God, to greater see what God has done for us to greater lean upon him, to greater praise him because of the highness of what he has accomplished for us. And all the while, it should also drive us to see these areas that we fall short and that we should not trust in ourselves whereby we would make ourselves right with God or we would make God happy with us because we lived a certain way, but rather we would walk in obedience because this is the God who has saved us. This is the God who has adopted us. Remember, we prayed, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the God who has adopted us, has, has brought us into his family, has granted us life in Christ Jesus. Philip Ryken makes this point. He is willing to cancel our debt if and only we come to faith, come to him in faith and repentance. It's a key point there. One of the strongest proofs that we have received such forgiveness from our Father is our own commitment to forgive others, no matter what they have done. It is simply a fact that children of God forgive their debtors. By forgiving our debtors, therefore, we show our family resemblance to our Father in heaven. Now, there are some that have looked at this passage and others like it and have said, okay, 
Look, it says, especially the one I read back in Matthew, if you forgive, then God will, your Father will forgive you. It, was, it is worded in those very strict if and then. And MacArthur sought to go and to make a distinction here and say, well, there's two different levels of forgiveness. You have one level of forgiveness that is there, and that is the justification that you receive by grace and through faith when you trust upon Christ Jesus. And then you have this other level of forgiveness that is a relational forgiveness. And that's what he is talking about here within this passage. Um, I would discourage such an interpretation. I don't think it's necessary. However, it is absolutely true that walking in unrepentance, falling into sin, does disrupt your relationship with God, not in a legal sense, not as far as your justification goes, but as far as your sanctification goes. And we'll walk into that a little further as we walk through the petition on protection. But ask yourself this question. Unforgiveness, holding grudges against others, despising others, hatred toward others, how is it benefiting you? You know, you get the great Texas theologian, as Vodia said, uh, Dr. Phil, says, how is that working for you? How is it benefiting you to hold a grudge towards someone else? How is it benefiting you to hold anger in your heart? How is it really even getting back at the other person? How many of you have been benefited by having hatred towards someone else? How many of you have been benefited by holding a grudge toward someone else? Consider this. Consider the ways in which you're merely allowing someone else to have power over you in those times. You're allowing the sin of someone else, perhaps. Perhaps it's, it's very legitimate that you're upset with the person. Perhaps it's, it's very legitimate that they harmed you and they, and they wronged you. But look at the power that you're allowing that person to have over you. Their wrongdoing is imprisoning you at that time. Their wrongdoing is shackling you in your walk in certain ways at this time. It is holding you back from walking in obedience. It's holding you back in, in walking freely in grace. Think of the ways you're entrapping yourself in these circumstances. How is that so distracting? How is that so distracting for you in your spiritual life? No, rather, it's best to look at the Lord. Look at the Lord as Father, one who has, has, has adopted us into the family of God, one who has granted us life in Christ Jesus by grace and through faith. The Lord is forgiving. The Lord is a forgiving Lord. Rightly so. Rightly so. He is just and justifier, but he is, he is forgiving. We will come to this parable shortly, but you have the parable of, it's oftentimes called the prodigal son. You could also call it, from a better perspective, I think the parable of the older brother, because that's where the parable ends. It is the older brother that is despising the grace of the father. It is the older brother that is outside of the party. It is the older brother that has his arms folded and is refusing to go in as the father is inviting him in, is calling him to come in for this celebration of the younger brother who came home. The blessing that is there in this child that has come home to the family, that is restored with the family, it is the older brother that is outside, that is being called to come in. We must not be 
like that older brother. We must not be the one who is unwilling to forgive, who is unwilling to, to see the way someone has wronged us and be unwilling to forgive them. We see this encouragement by Paul. We see the ways in which being forgiving is a fruit of the Spirit, a fruit of the work that God has done in our lives, the fruit of the grace that God has shown to us. It is, it is grace that is flowing from the Lord and flowing out from his children. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See the flow that Paul is emphasizing there. As you see with Ephesians, you have Paul in Ephesians laying out the things that God has done in you. Through Christ, he's done work in you. He's declaring things that are true, that you are alive, that you've been made new, that you've been called under the name of Christ. And there are results to that. God has forgiven you, and so you Christians should be forgiving to others. We see it also in the sister book of Colossians. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body and be thankful. Again, we have the same layout in the book of Colossians where Paul is laying out truths of what God has done, who you are in Christ Jesus. And since this is what you are, this is how you should live. And God has forgiven you, and so you should forgive other people. And you have a model in what God has done toward you. And notice also there in Colossians that you see this connection between thankfulness and forgiveness. This connection that is there that you recognize the grace that has been shown to you, the blessing of what God has given to you, that recognizing where you would be apart from the grace of God. That is very beneficial when it comes to orienting yourself rightly. Regardless of what terrible circumstance that you walk through, you can see that as a Christian, someone could take everything from you. They could take your money, your power, your life, your family, your job, any of these things, and you have in Christ more than the entirety of the world could ever give to you. And it doesn't change the pain of the situation or the circumstance, but it does orient you to see the gratefulness that even in times of difficulty and pain and struggle that you have in Christ Jesus, more than you could ever gain if you inherited the entirety of the wealth on earth. You're in the family of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. You were, you were taken from being a child of the devil to being a child of God if you are, in fact, in Christ Jesus. That is where you are, and that is why the prayer begins, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Edwards says this, and not Jonathan Edwards, but another commentator named Edwards. He says, believers are not simply objects of forgiveness. They are also the conduits of forgiveness, extending to others what God in grace has freely extended to them. As a reminder, dear friends, of, of what we have in Christ Jesus, please, please understand this, because there are many religions that you can follow in this world, but all of the religions fall into one of two categories. And on the one category, you have worldly religion, you have man's religion. And man, through his efforts, through his religious actions, and through his deeds, through his position, through his pedigree, makes himself right with God. Man, through his efforts and striving, brings up and puts before God his works and says, this is what I have done. What a good boy am I. See, but the, but the scriptures tell us that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. That is Romans chapter 3. Paul unpacks this idea, none is righteous. And you think, well, but my, my grandmother was such a good, no, not one. That's what Paul says. No, not one. Not even the person that you imagine that was such a great philanthropist. Not the person that you imagine that was such a great leader in politics. Not the person that was, that was so giving in other ways. Not the one that was caring for you. No, no, not one. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. But were those deeds not good compared with other men's deeds? Absolutely. You can see them as being good compared to other people in the world. You can find men that sin less than you. You can find people that don't do things as that you do. You can find people that sin worse. But the question is by what standard? What is the standard of righteousness that is required whereby you can stand before the Lord? What is the standard of righteousness that is required whereby you can have peace with God? You have offended a righteous and a holy God. As we pray in the second part there, we say, hallowed be your name. We say, Father, hallowed be your name. This is a reminder that this is God, that he brought all things into existence, that he is sovereign and he is ruling and he is a righteous and a holy judge. God has given a time for man to die and then the judgment all will stand before him at that point. And the fullness of man's religion the fullness of man's efforts will in no way do anything to remove his sin, will in no way remove his guilt. The perfect requirement of the law must be met. And there's one means that God has given. There's one way that the Lord has given whereby you can have peace with God. And that is by grace and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will see the ways in which you, you have fallen short, if you will see the ways in which you do not measure up to God's righteous requirement, and you will find no hope in yourself, either because of who you were related to, either because of your religious deeds. It doesn't matter how many times you have gone to church in your life. That is not the standard that is there, though it is important to go to church. The Lord does care how many times that you go to church but the standard of righteousness required is perfect obedience to the law. We've fallen short, but Christ has fulfilled this in every way. Jesus came, fully God and fully man. He clothed himself in flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life. 
never broke one law, not even in his mind, not in his heart, not in his desires. He fulfilled the law in every respect. And he died. He died as the sinless lamb of God. He died as the wrath of God was poured upon him, as he was placed upon the cross. And he died that whoever would believe upon him would be saved. If you will put down your own efforts and trust upon the work of Christ, you will be saved. And that's a promise that we have. That's the source of our pardon from sin. And the good works that follow from that are the result of the work that God has done in us in saving us and the work he is continuing to do in sanctifying us. Secondly, we see this idea of, of protection, protection from evil. And we have this interesting line within the, within the prayer, and lead us not into temptation. Now, again, this has been another line that has been difficult for some. Most recently, it's been difficult for the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Francis takes a great issue with this rendering. Instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, he says that it will now say, this is him by fiat making a declaration as to how it is that this verse will be translated, do not let us fall into temptation. He was interviewed on this topic, and he said, it is not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. He said, I'm quoting this, he told the Italian TV, I am, I am the one who falls. It is not him pushing me into temptation. Then I see how I have fallen. He continues, a father doesn't do that. A father helps you to get up immediately. It is Satan who leads you into temptation. That's his department. Well, there's, it's, I think it's very bold for him just to declare that's how it should be translated when that's not actually how it's rendered within the Greek language. And furthermore, it's, it's not even how it, is generally been, it, how it has been confessed by the church. This is a prayer that goes, well, into the Gospels, of course, but we have it recited in, in writings as early as the first and second century in the Didache. This is something that Christians have been reciting and saying for two centuries. And so the Pope has no authority to go and just by fiat declare this is how it's going to be uh, translated. The Pope is an antichrist, if I can go ahead and make that comment. He is that antichrist that is spoken of in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And he would do well to understand the concepts of first and second causes as they're outlined in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It is his ignorance in this area that is leading him to make these statements. No, God is not the immediate acting agent when you are tempted. God is not the one who is making you be tempted. God is not forcing you to be tempted. He's not causing you to be a particular way, but he is still sovereign. God is sovereign over all things everywhere. And that is part of what we have undergirding this prayer here. Lead us not into temptation. So there's no reason to remove this idea. And in further, it's not removing God's sovereignty. Even in his statement here that it should say, do not let us fall into temptation, you still have the reality of whether or not God is acting or not. It hasn't been removed. 
it makes someone feel better by saying that or maybe reciting it that way, even though that's not what it says. But God is sovereign even in his acting. God is sovereign in, in keeping you from being tempted. God is sovereign in restraining Satan and holding him back. Because the reality is, does God remove all temptation and everywhere? Is there a lack of temptation within the world? The reality is, no, there is not. So God is sovereign over this area. He is sovereign in removing the existence and acts of temptation. So what am I saying? I'm saying, Pastor, are you saying that God makes a sin? Well, no. Of course not. That would be absurd. That's not a right understanding of this either. We're not saying, oh, Lord, don't go and make me sin, or oh, Lord, don't bring me into a situation where I'm going to be sinning as though God is the one who is acting as the agent that is making this this happen. But we have numerous passages that would already guard us, that would keep us from such an interpretation, which is why the totality of Scripture is important. It's why we have a, a doctrine, a concept, such as the analogy of Scripture, that when we're interpreting a passage, we're going to take into account other passages in the Bible. We're not going to read something in isolation. We're not going to keep it away from everything else that the Lord has stated, even if those things come after what is written. But we know that God does not tempt. We see that in James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. He's saying, don't say that. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death, And so we have this idea that is laid out here within this passage that gives us a reminder of what is happening when we are tempted. We are being lured and tempted by our own desires. We are the ones that are acting in that. The Lord sovereignly orders all that happens. He ordains whatsoever shall come to pass. But within what he is ordaining, as we've seen as we walk through the fifth chapter of the confession, understanding God's providence, we see this reality that God is sovereign over what happens, like he was sovereign over Joseph going to Egypt. But he didn't make the brothers sin. He didn't make them do what they were doing, but rather it was an outflow of what was within their hearts. Consider this how it's laid out in the fifth chapter of the fourth paragraph of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, an infinite goodness of God so far manifests themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall in all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation of his most holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God who belongs um, who being most holy and righteous, neither is or can be the author or the approver of sin. They're seeking to inform this idea that we see in passages like James here and in others, this idea of God is sovereign over all that happens, but the particularities of the actions are flowing from the creatures. So this passage is recognizing our weakness. It's recognizing our hopelessness to fight and have victory over sin apart from the work of God in our lives. We're praying, Lord, do not lead us into temptation. And that is us laying ourselves down and saying we are weak. We are hopeless in and of ourselves. 
We need your work in our lives. We need the work of the Word and the Spirit in our lives. We need to be sanctified. We need to continually be changed. And it's a pleading with God that even in times where we walk into temptation and we walk into difficulties, when God is sovereignly ordering that, that he would be using it for his good purpose, which, by the way, is consistent with what he has promised us. Consider what we see in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he, he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a warning there against pride. This prayer that we have in this last petition is the very opposite of pride. It's the very opposite of us saying, I've got this, I'm under control, I'm good, I've checked off my boxes, I've walked through my spiritual list, and I'm good to go. That's not the perspective we need to have. We need to have a perspective of reliance upon the Lord, a, a perspective that I am hopeless apart from your work. Con continuing here in 1 Corinthians 10, there in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God, in his purpose of us being tempted, his purpose of us walking through trials and difficulties, he has a purpose in this to bless us and to grow us in that. How many of you have walked through difficulties Sometimes it's easy to look into the past. Sometimes it's easy to, to look back and to see the provision that God has given to you previously. How many of you can look back at difficulties and trials that you have experienced in your past, in your life, and see the ways in which God has used those things to grow you, use those things to strengthen you, use those things to mature you and to sanctify you. Those things are better seen looking backward and then seeing where you are now, seeing how God has used those things. Because in the middle of trial, in the middle of difficulty, sometimes we can merely be focusing on the problem that we have in front of us and not remembering what the Lord has done for us most especially in saving us in Christ Jesus. But remembering even these times where he's used difficulties and pains and sufferings in the past to grow us and to sanctify us. That is what we are praying and lead us not into temptation that we are fully relying on him, that we are trusting in him, that we are asking for his provision. We're asking for us, him to bless us that we would have victory over sin, that he would continue to sanctify us, that he would do what he's promised, which is to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. Leon Morris says this, he says, Christians recognize their weakness and the ease with which they give way to temptations in the world, the flesh and the devil. So they pray to be delivered from them. This is a key, there's, a, there's an emphasis upon humility. The Lord has, is, is working within you here. Another commentator named Hughes makes this comment about the passage. He says, the operative inner quality here is humble awareness of our weakness. The very best person is, at his or her best, vulnerable and easily stumbled apart from God's gracious provision and strength. And we are never so vulnerable as when we think we are past a certain temptation. The strongest believers are sure they cannot stand apart from the grace of God. Those who doubt their ability to withstand temptation, those who plead, lead us not into temptation that is beyond our capacity to withstand. It is a recognition. It is a recognition of your own sinfulness. The, the reality of what's in your heart. 
What can happen apart from God's gracious provision? It is a prayer for God's provision. Do you trust God in this area? Are you trusting God for provision in this area? Are you trusting God for provision in these things? We can use things such as spiritual disciplines in a way that is detrimental to us. We can make even doing good things like reading the Bible and praying as though we are, we are doing these things to check off a particular list so that we can get something in particular, as though I'm going to do these following actions, and because I did these actions, I'm not going to have any difficulty today. I'm going to do these particular actions, and then I'm, I'm not going to have any temptation today. There is a direct correlation, okay, between attendance in church, reading the Bible, and praying, and victory over sin, success in these areas. That's true. I'm not denying that. Uh, we've got, if you can go on that back table, we have a paper in the back, and it's how to read through the Bible for a year, and you can start any day of the year, not just on January 1st, with that particular paper. So we encourage those things. But the way in which we utilize these things is not as though it's, it's some kind of a magic formula that I'm going to check all these boxes and then things are going to go well for me. Or I'm going to check off these boxes and things are just going to go easy for me. That's not how Christianity works. That's not how this religion works. No, you are trusting the Lord even in those times. Even in your obedience in doing these things that are good. Why would you not read the Bible? You have it in your language. Why would you not study the Word of God? You have it in your language. Most Christians have not had it. So we don't look at it and say, if you don't read your Bible, then you're not going to grow as a Christian. Well, actually, most Christians have grown throughout history and have not had the copy of the Scriptures in their language. In fact, when you go to the early church, they would have people called readers. They would have readers. And that was a, these were people that were educated to the point they could read. Not everyone knew how to read in the first century. Not everyone could read Koine Greek in the first century. These were people that were so proficient they could read before the church. And so the way where you were primarily gaining the word of God was when the church assembled on the Lord's Day. You are blessed now to have the scriptures in your language. You are blessed now to be literate and to be able to read. It is a good stewardship on your part to do that but our doing of these things is on account of this is what's best for me in my time and what to do remembering this see this reality that, that even in, in in what we're praying here lead us not in temptation it is under the previous petition your kingdom come okay so god is sovereign even here we're recognizing that we're not praying this just so life is easy and calm and everything goes smoothly for us that we have no difficulty we're praying this under that petition your kingdom come and so it may be god's will for you to be tempted it may be god's will for you to walk into trial and difficulty that may be his will we see god doing that it doesn't mean that god is is forcing you to do things it doesn't mean that, that God is the one that is tempting you. It doesn't mean that. But God is not failing when this happens. And I want to reference the Second London Baptist Confession again in chapter 5 and then in paragraph 5. And they deal specifically with this topic. And we also dealt with it in our last Sunday school lesson. But it says the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for 
for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends. So whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. So God may have a purpose for the trial that you're going through. There could be many reasons that it is happening. It could be because of things that you've done in your past. It could be because of things that you're doing right now. It could be because of what they said here, corruption that is in your own hearts, things that aren't being dealt with, things that you didn't recognize or see until they were made, uh, you were made aware of them, until the temptation brought that to light, to rather expose this thing, give you recognition that it is there. It's manifesting itself now when the temptation came, but it's manifesting what was already there. I mean, imagine that if I'm walking across the room and I've got a cup of coffee, all right, and then someone runs in front of me and then I trip and the coffee spills everywhere, which if I did that, I'd go get a towel and clean it up immediately. Just for as a note, those of you that may have coffee and you spill it, you clean it up immediately. But if I did that, I wouldn't say that this child caused coffee to be in the cup. This child that went in front of me and I tripped over this child, it, it didn't cause the coffee to be in the cup. It exposed the coffee that was in the cup. It was already there. And so these trials and temptations and difficulties are exposing things that are already there. They're not causing them to come into existence. And so God has a purpose even in that. God has a purpose in these things bringing themselves forward. That's what they're saying there in the fifth paragraph of the fifth chapter of the confession, but it's also what you see in James, okay? You go a few verses earlier in James 1. Uh, James encourages you to count testing with all joy. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is a recognition that God is going to use this for our good, that even the difficulty that comes into our lives, God will use that for our good. He will expose these sinful areas that we didn't see, that we thought we were good, we thought we were fine, we, we, we were being prideful in this area, but the Lord is exposing it to us He's showing love to us in that. Even allowing these things to happen to us, he is showing kindness and love to us that we would be killing sin, that we would be putting these things away. Calvin makes this point. I'm going to land the plane here. But Calvin makes this point. He says, the meaning is we are conscious of our own weakness and desire to enjoy the protection of God that we may remain protected against all assaults of Satan we showed from the former petition that no one can be reckoned a Christian who does not acknowledge himself a sinner. And in the same manner, we conclude from this petition that we have no strength for a holy life except so far as we obtain it from God. Whoever implores the assistance of God to overcome temptations acknowledges that unless God deliver him, he will, con he will be constantly falling. And so we're remembering that the gospel is not something that we just believe in at the beginning of the Christian life and then we move on to bigger and better things. No, the gospel is something, dear friend, that you are trusting in throughout the Christian life. It's something that you continue to believe upon, continuing to trust in, for you need the grace of God throughout your life. And that is our prayer here. As one 
who comes before the Lord as one who is saved by grace and through faith, recognizing this is our Father who has loved us, who, who has shown kindness to us, has, has shown blessing to us, has shown love to us through Christ Jesus, has adopted us even into his family. He's not just Father, he is holy and righteous God, and that should give you pause. That the creator of the universe chose to save you, has given you life, has, has laid down even the, his son, Christ Jesus, for you. We're praying he as Father and as Lord, ruling over his kingdom, that his kingdom would come, that he would be ruling within our lives, that he would bring his kingdom forward, that he would bring it forward first and foremost in our own hearts, that he would be working within us, that he would be affecting us, that he would be changing us. With that understanding, we go to him for provision. We go to him for our daily bread, for our daily needs, understanding that even in what he is providing, we're praying that he would do that in a way that best glorifies him, asking him forgiveness for sins, hope, hopeless apart from him, hopeless apart from his pardon, and praying for his protection, protecting us even in our spiritual lives now, blessing us to grow us and strengthen us by grace and through faith, and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we're praying in the totality of this prayer, remembering who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Knowing that regardless of what we walk through, he has shown his love to us. Regardless of what we experience, that he is the sovereign Lord and he will do what he has promised that he will do. And that is our prayer as we go to him. And we pray that his will would be done. And he'd be bringing it to pass upon this world. And first and foremost, and especially within our own hearts. Dear friend, I hope that is your prayer. My desire is that this prayer would be informing your prayers. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, we, we come before you. And we come before you as the Father that has shown us such kindness and love. Such, such blessing, granting to us what, what we deserve not, keeping from us what we so righteously deserved. And you do this as one who is sovereign, one who is Lord, one who is ruler of all, one who is absolutely holy, one who is perfect in every respect. Our Father, you, you grant to us we are hopeless apart from your provision either in this life for our basic needs or spiritually, apart from what you give to us. We pray that you would bless us in seeing our sin, grant us repentance from this. Bless us that we would be forgiving of others, remembering the grace that we have been given. And we pray for your protection, your provision in this life. That you would bless us to grow in a greater and deeper understanding of your grace, and your wisdom, that you would bless us to trust more and more in you each and every day, that be trusting you in times of want, in times of excess, in times of difficulty, and in times of ease. May we glorify you in all ways. We pray this in Jesus' name.